Welcome to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast, where changing the world starts with changing the home, with your host, Meredith Curtis. Hi, I'm Laura Nolet, and I want to welcome you back to 100 Homeschool Hacks. Meredith Curtis and I are still celebrating six years and 100 episodes of the Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. Let's dive right in and hear some more great tips. Hi, my name is Kate Nolette, and I'm going to be giving you 10 tips for teaching preschoolers and toddlers. I am the mother of three little ones who are four, just turned three, and one. So we are doing all those preschool toddler things right now all the time. So my tip number one for you is read, read, read. And not just read to them, read for yourself. I'm always reading books when I have a free minute, and my kids will come up and try to steal my books away from me when they're babies. By the time they're three or four, they know they're not supposed to take. But they're seeing mom loves to read. Reading is fun. I encourage getting good picture books for your preschoolers and toddlers. That means great pictures, colorful, bright that that make them excited to look at the pictures and ask questions and good stories i hate reading those rhyming books where the rhymes don't really fit and the rhythm's off and so you have this really long line and a short line and the rhythm feels weird find books that they read well and you get engaged in the story talk about them interact with the pictures the key to reading comprehension starts at about one or two when little kids start pointing to the pictures and saying ball car boy and then they start asking questions about them and eventually they start asking questions and making comments about the story all of that is the beginning of reading comprehension starts with pointing at those pictures so don't see that as interruptions let them interacting with the pictures spark ideas and interest in the story and start this at birth my little one-year-old loves her little indestructible book called hello farm and she'll bring it to me over and over i'll read it she'll walk away and read it by herself then bring it right back to me simple little words hello pigs oink oink hello cows moo moo welcome to the farm i can tell you the whole story because i've read it so many times but she loves it she gets so excited and now she likes to read it by herself and all of this is getting them to be excited about the idea of reading you don't have to be able to know phonics and read words on a page to love to read make reading engaging make it fun snuggle together and encourage them to read it by themselves as well sometimes when my three or four year old wake up and say okay we need a few minutes more of quiet time baby's still sleeping go ahead and read to yourself and they can read for a good 20 or 30 minutes sometimes let them narrate and share thoughts on the story you don't want to train them to interrupt as they get bigger they need to learn to wait but i try to give a pause at the end of each page and look at them and that's their signal i can ask a question now i can make a comment stories are for engaging with that's how writing starts that's the whole principle of narration in the charlotte mason method and even college classes that are about study skills start teaching you how to ask questions while you're reading you can start that with your one and two year old it's that simple and stretch them with longer books golden books beatrix potter those kinds of books are a little bit longer and have more words on the page and that trains 
their attention span to engage for longer periods of time. And eventually they start to move into books, chapter books like Winnie the Pooh that has some pictures on some pages. And then eventually they'll be reading chapter books with you that have very few pictures. We love the Boxcar Children, the Winnie the Pooh series, and my three and four year old will sit. You know what we do? Wake up from nap time, we get our favorite snack, apple slices, goldfish, pickles. We sit at the table and we read our chapter books. And it's a fun time. A snuggle is another way to make reading a longer book exciting to them. So tip number one was read, read, read. Tip number two is about your children's environment. Create an environment and schedule for your child that allows for and encourages creative free play. The key to this, I think probably number one, is going to be cutting out screen time, even completely if possible. We have chosen not to have a TV or internet, but we have a laptop. Sometimes we play videos on it. When they're sick, we watch videos. But I find that when we're watching next to no TV, we're doing a lot more creative, brain-engaging things. So part of it is, okay, eliminating that, create time in their schedule. We can get so busy doing all these different things. I don't have older ones, so I can't even imagine yet having all of that on your plate, that the kids are just running around and not having time to play. Make time for that. And create an environment that's welcoming to that, which means the toys and activities that are good for that. Maybe you have an art corner. We have an easel. We have a drawer with paper and yarn, and there's a drawer with glue sticks. They have their own safety scissors, crayons, paints, watercolors smocks that they can use for painting. All these things are great ways to be stimulating their brain, learning, problem solving, comprehension, spatial awareness, motor skills. Dress up clothes are another awesome part of creative free play. My children love that. Even the little one-year-old the other day was trying to get into her brother's firefighter costume. And they're playing games that are thoughtful, they're thinking, they're imagining, they're creating. Personally, I think electronic toys tend to detract from their brain engagement because it's a little bit like screen time. But problem solving and creative toys, blocks, music makers, stuffed animals and dolls, stacking toys, little kitchen sets, or playing with your old pots and pans toys that they have to shape, you know, those little wooden boxes with the holes that they put the wooden shapes into. All those things are great, great ways to be stimulating their brains to work as they're playing and learning. Tip three, you create a relationship with your child that is encouraging and fostering learning. This means talking and listening. And you know that two and three-year-old stage where they're just asking why all the time. And sometimes you're like, I just want a break. But that time that we're sitting talking and listening and answering their questions and engaging with them is all probably more important than any other learning activities you can do with them, except maybe reading in the Bible. All of that is training them to think. My oldest son came to me one day and was saying, Mom, did you know that this kind of critter, I don't even remember what it was, doesn't live in 
the kind of home that others do, but berries in the ground. And I thought, I had no idea that that type of bug, I think, lives in the ground. But Daddy had told him, and he remembered it. Along with talking, as part of this tip about creating a learning relationship with your child, is letting them join in with you. I remember hearing that preschoolers can develop good handwriting skills by things like stirring brownie batter with you. So, oh, I'm going to set up baking time with my kids. But, you know, when I bake in the kitchen, they just want to come in with me. I don't have to set up special times to do these motor skills activities. I just need to let them come in and join me with what I'm doing. And additionally, if they're doing chores with me, my three-year-old loves to help me in the kitchen. He gets out his stool and comes in almost every meal I make. And he also loves to help me with laundry. My four-year-old loves to help with his baby sister and is playing with her. All these things, letting them help and do things that are actually helpful, training them to do chores like make their bed and clear the table, are so beneficial to their sense of confidence and hard work and responsibility and personal value. And... It's the foundation of learning because it's the building of character that's so critical to them learning. All that comes down to the relationship. Am I willing to let them be in my way and make my tasks a little harder as they join me in everything I do? Because that's where they're going to learn the most. And be a person who notices learning opportunities and makes the most of them. Stopping at the library and being part of story time is one of our favorite things to do. But it's also as simple as as we're taking a morning walk saying, hey, do you see that bird? I think he's building a nest. Or I hate bugs. But every time we see a bug or we find a bug in the house and one of the boys squishes it for me, then we look, how many legs does it have? Is it hard? Is it squishy? Believe me, that does not come naturally to me. But I force myself to do it because I want them to be excited about learning about and investigating nature. So all those things are part of being in a learning relationship with your child, modeling it, interacting with them in ways that encourage learning. Tip number four is just an organizational tip, but I found it so helpful to organize boxes or drawers with each box or drawer with separate skills that are important for learning in the preschool years, such as fine motor skills, math skills, and by math skills I mean things like matching, sorting, patterning, sequencing, first, second, third. I have a box for numbers, one for colors and shapes. I just find that makes it so much easier. You can find all these fun activities on Pinterest or I use books because I'm not a big screen time person, but I have all these books about preschool learning and I find all these activities and then I go and make them and prepare them. But then it's like, oh, we don't do them because I forgot I had them. So having them in the drawers is really easy. And I try to do one, maybe one a week. Maybe you're more ambitious and you're doing one of them a day. So you're doing a motor skill and a math skill. But it's just really easy. You just pull one right out of the box. And as far as what those might include, again, I recommend books or Pinterest. You can find tons of ideas. But things like stringing, cutting, tracing, playing with Play-Doh, playing, fishing things out of water or out of sand, containers with holes punched in them and little straws that you poke through them, all those are great for motor skills. Math might be photos of them at different ages to sequence oldest to youngest or youngest to oldest matching cards shapes made out of felt in different sizes and colors so they can sort them by shape they can sort them by size they can sort them by color all those are different activities that you could have in these different drawers and it's just so easy open the drawer of the box pull an activity out 
there you go. And when they're bored, they want to go in those drawers and they're learning and they don't even know it. Tip number five, outdoor and nature time are so important for this age. And I'm finding, and maybe it's just having boys, they really need to burn off all that energy. Let them play. Let them throw and kick the ball, climb trees. I try to take my children to the playground at least two or three times a week because they really just need to burn off energy and they're building gross motor skills, which is really important at this age. And we don't think about it, but them jumping off the playground set is building strength in their body that eventually they're going to need to write and form their letters. I know, who thought handwriting came down to playing on the playground? Another part of this outdoor nature time is exploring nature, and that is really helped just by asking questions or encouraging them. My children found a snake skin. My instinct was to say, oh my goodness, there was a snake in my backyard, but I squelched that, kept it inside until I talked to my husband later, and we looked at the snake skin. I let them touch it. We talked about how snakes shed their skin, how long is the snake. Sometimes I let them go get their magnifying glass, and we look at the leaves, or we look at the grass, or we just sit on the grass. Again, you can't force these things. They just happen as you're outside playing. You say, hey, look, why is that grass a different color? And we talk about how leaves change color, and sometimes grass may change color if it's getting too dry. It can get brown because it's drying up. Maybe there hasn't been enough water. Another thing that's really fun to do is going on a sound walk or a texture walk, and I did this with my sister and a friend of ours to kind of help corral them. And we found something wet, something slimy, something rough, something smooth, something soft. And it's just fun and it gets them exploring. You can also do something called uh, a one-minute study or five-minute study where I give them a minute or two. And they look at the tree or the bush or the flower and then they have to tell me a couple things about it. Tip number six is learning about numbers. And this really starts first with just counting everything. Count as they're doing something. Jumping, we're going to jump five times. One, two, three, four, five. Or how many plates are on the table and we count them. I love to read, so a lot of our counting is in books as we point to pictures and how many trees are there, how many ducks are there, and we count them together. Also, it's important to make sure you do count with real things. Activities are really good for boys, counting the jumps. Then, for me, it was a little harder learning, okay, well, they can count, but they don't realize those have a visual aspect, the numbers. So I got really big number cards, and then I would teach them, okay, this is that number one that we've been learning about, and we hold up one finger, and we get out one ball, but then we would play games with it, especially as you have several numbers, so now we have one through four, and I lay them out, and then we have M&Ms, and you put one M&M with the one, and you put three M&Ms with the three, and just helping them associate the number with the quantity. And there's also many games and toys that have numbers on them. If you have preschoolers like I do, you know so many of the different games and toys are designed for this. They have numbers and colors and shapes on them. So sometimes if we're learning about three, then we catch all the number three fish or we find all the number three squares on the toy or on the game. And I also love counting books for this because they have the number on them and they count them, especially the series over in the meadow, over in the jungle, over in the savannah. It's a whole series and they have really beautiful artwork, really interesting geographical things you learn from seeing the types of animals, and it's fun counting. Tip number seven, 
make routine part of your life and make it work for you. I am a really structured person. Then I had kids and I thought, I'm so structured, I've got to be more flexible. So I just kind of tried to let them determine the schedule. I found when I started adding routines in, they were a lot calmer, they felt a lot more secure. However, when I get very rigid with our routine, we have to start breakfast by this time. We have to spend so much time on bath. We have to be out of the house by this time. Obviously, you have commitments that you have to be out of the house by a certain time for church. But having a lot of those kinds of commitments on a rigid schedule, I've found creates a lot of stress and frustration with having three kids four and under. So... For me, I'm just starting to learn slowly but surely how important it is to be flexible and to simplify my expectations with little ones, but still to have a routine. Because between diapers and tantrums, a routine that takes an hour one morning can take, on a rough morning, three to four hours, and it's 11 o'clock and we're starting our bath after breakfast. But if I'm flexible, then I'm not getting mad and getting angry and the kids aren't getting upset because mommy's grumpy. But children do need and thrive on routines. Bedtime routines, nap time routines, morning routines. Some children need more routines than others, and you probably know if you have one because he has to have the covers exactly this way and you have to read exactly three stories in exactly the right order. Some kids aren't so much like that. Weekly patterns help too. Because if you really want to be baking with your kids, but you have this activity with your mom one day, and we go to the library on another day, and we go to the park on this other day, you're never going to fit it in. For me, it's helpful to know, hey, Mondays are the days we're at home, and we do laundry. Tuesdays are the days we go to the library and have playground time. I know that if I want to do baking, it's going to need to happen on Thursday. That kind of thing. So for us... We have Monday, we have laundry, and we do more school activities at home because we're just home all day because of the laundry. Tuesday, we go to the library for story time in the playground. Wednesday is Grandpa Day, and we have Life Group that evening, and we do more learning creative art activities in the afternoon. Thursday, we have co-op with my friend and her little boys. Friday, we try to do nature study, depending on how hot it is, and we go to the Y and to Grand Mary's house, which they enjoy. Saturday, Dad's home. And then we always, every Saturday, we have a tea party after nap while my husband is at worship practice, and that's become a really fun routine. I also, for me, enjoy having a weekly list of, and this is going to be a long list, but the passages we're studying in the Bible, the Bible theme that we're focusing on, the memory verses they have, the books we're reading aloud, art and creative activities, songs and finger play for the younger ones, a math skill, a motor skill, a nature theme or outdoor activity, and a color and shape activity. And then I also am doing math and phonics with my older one. And then have fun activities for the middle one to be doing on his own. So, wow, that seems like a lot. Ideally, that all would just happen without me having it in some kind of paper to look on. But I find with juggling three, it just doesn't happen for me unless I have it written down. But I'm really flexible about it. So I don't necessarily get to all those activities that week, and that's okay. And I don't feel like I have to do them on a certain day. But we kind of go with what they're interested in and excited about, and I have ideas. So instead of just thinking, oh, well, let's let's just... Hmm, we'll just pull out this game or wanting, uh, I wish I could just stick in a video. This helps me come up on the fly with activities that they can be doing and learning.
And it also helps me make sure that I have one-on-one time with them. If I don't intentionally schedule one-on-one time with them with three who are so little, I won't ever have it. So it helps me be more intentional. But for other moms, that might not work at all for you. You need to keep it completely free and just have this is the big activity we do on Monday and the big activity we do on Tuesday and Thursday's library day. And that's all the routine you need besides having a morning routine, a bedtime routine, a bath routine, etc. So uh, use this as you need, but make sure you have some routine to give your kids stability and that you're also being flexible however you fall in the midst of that. Tip number eight, I love unit studies for toddlers. You think, oh, well, that's too advanced, but I theme things by their picture books. So this year we're focusing on heroes because in our culture right now, superheroes are the big things thanks to Marvel. And all the teens and young adults in their lives are talking about superheroes. And so my little boys are so excited about superheroes. But I do have some concerns with that personally because especially for so young, it encourages them in fighting. It can encourage them with the idea of self-sufficiency rather than dependence on Jesus. And sometimes they get these ideas about getting powers outside of Christ, which is very problematic for me. So I was praying, and the Lord gave me this idea of doing heroes that are real heroes. So we're learning about rockets and astronauts, knights and kings and castles. We're learning about the different continents and the explorers and famous missionaries in those continents, community helpers like firefighters, and policemen and cowboys in the Wild West. So I like to use storybooks and creative activities to spark playtime with each other that's creative and fun and not playing superheroes. Instead, they're playing police officers or firefighters saving the kitty from the burning building. When they get excited and learning that, then I know that I've succeeded in the goal I had for our themes this year. And I usually like to do one a month. That's what I've been doing the past few years. And sometimes they'll just naturally create a theme. You're reading about a book about Noah's Ark, and all of a sudden they want to play in the water with their different animals, and then they want to pair the animals up. And you've just done matching math skills. You're doing motor skills in the water. You're doing all kinds of stuff. A lot of picture books like Blueberries for Sal just lend themselves to that kind of unit study. You can go blueberry picking. They play bears. You learn about the color blue. You can sort fruit by color, blue fruits, red fruits, green fruits. Maybe they count blueberries and you learn about the b b sound in bears and blueberries. So preschooling is a great time to theme around picture books. Tip number nine, phonemic awareness. If you listened to those tips for teaching little ones to read, then you've already heard about this, but it's the key to phonic success. Play sound games, work with breaking words into their syllables, baby, garage, playground, and then blending syllables into words. Finding the initial sounds of a word, mommy starts with mm, daddy starts with d, and the final sounds. Um, Susie, your name ends in E. Um, And then blending sounds to make words. H-A-T says hot. And then later segmenting words into the sounds. So what are the sounds in the word bat? B-A-T. All those are part of phonemic awareness. And I like using a simple book called Sounds Abounds that uses classic picture books and then has phonemic awareness activities to go with it. And I just do one activity every day. Tip number 10, 
the most important and my favorite is teaching them the Bible. And there are many different ways to do this. I use Bible storybooks throughout the day, especially at night and right before a nap. I also like to tell them stories. I started telling them these stories about a bunny who met Jesus before he died. And then they wanted me to keep going. So I ended up telling them stories through the whole books of, book of Acts about Max the bunny and what he did. I don't think his name was Max, but I can't remember what it was. My all-time favorite storybook Bible is the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's so great. I encourage adults to read it, too. I've given it as Christmas gifts to all the adults in my life. But during breakfast, we always read the actual Word of God. We read the exact scripture passage because it doesn't matter if they're one, four, or 20. They can listen to the word of God. And as I read, I stop after every verse and explain or ask questions or help them engage with it. Usually we read a psalm and then uh, a passage in whatever book we're going through. So right now we're going through the Gospels and we read just a little chunk about Jesus and we read a psalm. So so we read the psalm and we read a passage in the gospel and then we usually pray together. This is all a learning experience. It is a lot of training for them to sit still and to focus and to listen and to answer questions. I try to make it really positive and some days are really positive and exciting and some days we have a lot of squirming and not listening and I feel like they're never going to learn to love the Bible. But we're doing it every day and it's clicking in their heart at some point. I have memory verses every two weeks for my four-year-old and every month for my just-turned-three-year-old. Another thing I like to do is to have a theme each week or each month. So this year my theme was alternating weeks, a week of God is, and then we are something in Christ. So God is king, and then the next week we learn we are royal children. We are heirs of Christ. God is our father. We are God's children. Jesus is the conqueror of sin and death and hell. We are more than conquerors in Christ. So that's been a lot of fun. And then we have passages that go along with it. And their memory verses kind of go along with whatever the theme is. So what does that look like in a morning? I always, for me, do Bible time during breakfast since they're all more engaged and quiet and ready to listen. And we read a passage, either the psalm and gospel, or we read a passage coordinated to our theme. Then we talk about what the theme is. We review our memory verses, which for me is just we say, each of them says, repeating after me, their memory verse three times every day. And the amount of time I give them a month for my three-year-old, two weeks for my four-and-a-half-year-old is enough time for them to memorize it by that time. We're also going through Fruit of the Spirit this year, so then we talk a little bit. We're learning these we, this month about goodness. Remember, goodness is, and we talk about it. And then finally, and this is something I just started doing this summer, is we read a short passage every day for about a month. So we did Psalm 23, and we just read it every day. And I noticed after three weeks that my oldest was saying it by himself without echoing me. He was saying it right along with me. We did John 1, verses 1 through 5, and now we're doing the end of Romans 8. And the goal isn't really that they memorize it, but my oldest is, just naturally. But they're becoming familiar with it, and they're saturating in it. They're meditating on this passage, and it's sinking into their heart. So that might sound really challenging. Bible time is probably where I push the most. But I also try to make it really, really fun and incorporate it throughout our whole day as we talk about the Lord. So these are 10 tips for teaching your little ones, your preschoolers and toddlers, and having fun while you're doing it. Thanks, Kate. You always give us such great tips. Now let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. 
Powerline Productions wants to help you celebrate special occasions with your family in a Christ-honoring way. The Celebrate series includes such titles as Celebrate Our Christian Heroes Instead of Halloween, Celebrate Thanksgiving, as well as Christmas Unit Studies, Celebrate Christmas in Colonial America, and Celebrate Christmas with Cookies. If you're looking for a new family tradition, learn all about the Nolet and Curtis Christmassy festivities and celebrate Christmas with a traveling dinner. Check out these titles and more at PowerlinePro.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-L-I-N-E-P-R-O-D.com. Powerline Productions, being world changers, raising world changers. been listening to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast on the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. Now back to your host, Meredith Curtis. It's Meredith Curtis again with five ideas for teaching history the fun way. We love history in our house. It's so exciting to travel back in time by cooking and doing crafts and all kinds of fun things and find out what happened and to who it happened and why it happened and how God was involved in the whole thing. So here are my five ideas for making history fun. Number one, look for the story. There's always a story. There's always more than meets the eye. When we were studying World War One, and we've always heard, yes, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was shot, but what was the story behind it? Did you know that his wife and he were celebrating their anniversary and that there had been an earlier attempt that day on their life, but they had hit another couple and so they went to visit them in the hospital and when they got to the hospital on their way to get to the hospital to visit the people who'd been shot they were lured into a side alley and killed so there's a story behind that little statement that we always read well what triggered world war one now you know there's a story behind it but the thing is there's a story behind everything idea number two See God's hand moving. Find out, was God answering prayers in specific ways? Did he have heroes that were proclaiming his truth? Was he turning something to an ultimate good? You know, God causes the rise and fall of nation. God intervenes in the affairs of men. So look for what God was up to. Number three idea for teaching history the fun way. Get to know the people. Find out more about the people. People are fascinating. What were they like? What did they love? How did they dress? What did they eat? That always makes history fun. Number four idea for teaching history the fun way. Immerse yourself in the time period. Travel back in time with food, music, art, crafts, painting, all kinds of things. Do things dress up, act it out, do things that make you feel like you're really there or you're really getting a handle on what life was like back then. Number five, throw a party. And I love this. You know, we've had medieval banquets and archaeological digs and sock hops and Victorian teas and Passover feasts and luau's. And we've even done cattle roundups, not with real cows, of course, 
and we pretended to spend a day at a monastery. We've created our own miniature golf course. We've taken stagecoach rides. And one of my favorites is that we've done a vaudeville show a couple of times. All of those things are really fun ways to not only learn about things as you prepare for these events, but to invite other people and include everyone in the fun of learning. After all, why not teach history the fun way? Hi, I'm Laura Nolet. In addition to homeschooling my four children, I've also spent decades tutoring children and young adults in math. So I'm going to share with you today five methods for mastering math. Number one, do math every day. That means at least five times per week, five different days. You'd be surprised how many parents and students have come to me desperate for help with math when all the student needed to do was do their math five times per week. Most math curriculums teach new concepts every week, sometimes even every day. You cannot remember these lessons unless you review them daily. It's like learning a new language. If you don't keep repeating the words over and over again, you just won't remember them or how to use them. Number two, memorize multiplication facts, zeros through twelfths, forwards and backwards. By that I mean they need to know that 3 times 5 equals 15 and they need to know you can get 15 by multiplying 3 times 5. This is called factoring. If students memorize this, division becomes much, much easier and factoring in higher math makes more sense. This will not only help students complete their math work faster, but also their science work. It will also help improve college entrance exam scores. It can even help them with household management and with many jobs later in life. Number three, use manipulatives. I love the ones made by Matthew C., but you can make your own. Math needs to be made real, and using objects which you can manipulate, in other words, manipulatives, does just that. I used to keep a fishbowl full of glass pebbles as a decorative item, which I rated regularly when tutoring math students. You could cut out strips of construction paper to make fractions. There's just so many things around your house. You just look around and you can find them. Use anything you can to make math real. Number four, do not stop asking questions until you really understand. This advice is for students, but also in a way for parents. Students, get clear with your questions. If what the teacher is saying seems backwards, tell them how it seems it should work to you. That way, the teacher can help clear it up. Parents, ask your students questions about what they are doing and why, so that they can show you that they understand. Number five, make sure you fully understand fractions. They never go away. Is the 40% off sale at one store really a better deal? Fractions. Did you actually get paid time and a half for working those extra hours? Fractions. For students, fractions are what kills in college algebra, also known as high school's Algebra 2. So whatever you do, make sure you fully understand what fractions are and how to work with them. Hey, I'm back. I have 10 tips for teaching from a Christian worldview. 
Number one, immerse yourself in the scriptures. Read, obey, listen to, memorize, meditate on, and study the Word of God. The best way to impart truth to the next generation is to know it yourself. We can't pass on what's not in us, and more is caught than taught. So when the Word of God is in your heart, when you read stuff or hear stuff or see things, watch a movie, read a book, you can test what you see, hear, or watch with the Word of God. So knowing the Word of God is the most important thing. Number two, surrender yourself and your homeschool to Jesus. Trust Him and then pray and ask Him to give you wisdom to educate your children and to teach truth to them that lines up with His Word. Number three, explore how the Bible applies to all of life and every academic subject. When you are studying a topic, look it up in the Bible so you can see how the Bible addresses it. The Bible has things to say about government and history and philosophy and sociology and economics, money, budgeting. There's just so much in the Word of God. And once you see for yourself what the Bible says, it's so helpful in discerning if what you have as a resource is lining up with a Christian worldview. One book that I found to be a great asset in my homeschooling, it is not a lightweight book. It's called Understanding the Times by David Noble, and it's a great resource because it touches on all the different worldviews and how they apply to different academic subjects. So it's definitely a great resource. Number four, know what a Christian worldview is. See, a worldview is like a set of glasses that you put on. And so say if I have a pair of glasses that are tinted yellow, if I see something blue, it will make it look green. Well, a Christian worldview is basically putting on God's glasses. What does he think about the world and everything in it? And that's how we view the life around us. So whenever you read, hear, or see things, learn to recognize the worldview. Is it Christian? Is it Muslim? Is it humanist? Is it postmodern? Is it Marxist or communist? Or is it New Age? Number five, build a library with books that are filled with truth and literature that is written from a Christian worldview. So collect biographies of godly men, read books that were written by not only people who call themselves Christians, but who really believed that the Bible was true, and get literature that rewards good and punishes evil and that is written from a Christian worldview. Number six, use truly Christian curriculum. Just because something seems Christian or says it's written from a Christian worldview doesn't necessarily make it so. One thing that helps me is to read bios on the author or to read the about us on a publishing company and just find out where they stand. Now, I know that what's happened to me is I've heard of books that were super popular. Like one time I got this history textbook that everyone seemed to be using. And then when I actually read it, the things that it was commending and the things that it was um, attacking were not at all lining up with the Word of God. So, But it was a super popular 
textbook among Christians. And so what I realized is that a lot of time parents don't read all the material that their kids read. And so if you're not able to read all the material that your kids read, maybe you have a friend who does read all the material and you can trust her or him or maybe you can split things up like hey you read this textbook over the summer and I'll read this one but definitely be choosy when it comes to curriculum number seven teach creation science and use textbooks and materials for a creation science perspective apologia is great with that master books is great with that of course the traditional like Abeka and Bob Jones all really good at presenting a creation worldview. I so appreciate that. Number eight, teach children the creation mandate. What is the creation mandate, you ask? Well, when God created Adam and Eve, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, rule over the world and subdue it. And so basically, you're in charge of the world. You need to fill it with people, but you also need to rule over it, take care of it, subdue it, make it work for you. You know, someone that puts irrigation in a desert and brings the desert to life with like a garden, they're subduing the earth. So we want to teach our children that principle because it makes education make sense. How can you subdue the earth if you don't understand how it works? or what's happened up to this point, that would be science and history. So um, one of the things that has really helped me is to read about Daniel because he was a, a nobleman in Israel, but he was captured by the Babylonians. And in chapter one, Daniel is going to be educated with the Babylonian culture, with the literature and all of that stuff. But Right away, Daniel refuses to defile himself, and that makes a huge impact on his education and on how ultimately the Lord is able to use him in a very, very wicked culture. So envision your children to rule and subdue by taking care of sick people one day, maybe, or building a bridge or inventing new technology or being a missionary and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. All of us can honor Christ in something simple. It doesn't matter how noble sounding something is. We can do everything to the glory of God and really make a difference. Number nine, teach apologetics and worldview to preteens and teens so they can be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks. And anyone who is mocking their worldview, they can stand up and defend it. And that's important for teens that are going to end up going to college, but also for teens that are just going to work because they're going to run into people. Young people have a lot of questions. And if your teens go through a period of doubts and questions, don't worry about that. That's very, very normal. Just give them resources, answer their questions and pray for them. Number 10, make sure children know when you are using materials that don't line up with scripture. So you can say, hey, we're using this book. It's not written by a Christian. It doesn't have a Christian worldview, but we're using it because it explains this really well. But over here in this section, this does not line up with a Christian worldview. And here's why it doesn't. So let kids know when you're using something that isn't from a Christian worldview perspective, let them know and then show them where it doesn't line up. And that's going to teach them to have discernment on their own. Anyway, thank you. 
Hi, it's Meredith again. I'm here with five ways to minister in your local church together. Yeah, that's right. Your family can minister together. They don't all have to go off in different directions. Number one, greet people on Sunday morning. You can be an official part of the greeting team of your church, or you can just say hello to people and ask how they're doing. As a family, you can say, hey, we're going to go early and we're just going to talk to people and reach out to them. And if they need prayer, we're going to pray. That's a great way to train your children to welcome others and to grow in poise and confidence. Number two, bring meals to new moms. Everyone can contribute to the cooking, packing it up and delivering it, especially when you get to see that new baby. But every new mom appreciates getting meals when she's recovering from the birthing process. And it's a great way to teach your children how to serve. Number three, pray for pastors and leaders together as a family with a thankful heart. Don't say, oh, Lord, change our wicked pastor. Oh, Lord, change our wicked deacon. But thank the Lord for them. Thank you for their life. Thank you for their service. Thank you for how they minister to us. You can also write notes of encouragement and hand deliver them. Remember that when you tell your pastors and leaders, hey, our family prays together for you, it really makes a big difference in their lives. Number four, host a home Bible study. This is another great way to serve as a family and to be blessed at the same time, because who doesn't get blessed when you study the Bible? Okay, this is what's involved. You have to straighten the house, clean it, prepare snacks, and greet and welcome people. That's sort of the basics. One thing I like about hosting a Bible study is that I know my house will get cleaned once a week. And of course, there's always great teaching coming our family's way. Number five, start a puppet ministry. Invest in some puppets and put on little puppet skits in Sunday school or maybe as a special during your church service. This will be really fun to do and it's a great way to teach your children spiritual truths and help them impart them to others. All you need is a couple of puppets. Hi, I'm Laura Nolet and I homeschooled my four kids all the way through to graduation. In the course of the time that we were doing school together, we went on multiple field trips on a limited budget. So I'm going to share with you 10 field trips that don't cost money. Number one, parks. Many cities, counties, and states have parks which are free to visit. They usually have something educational noted at the site. There are also a number of national parks throughout the country which are great to visit, but I don't know how many of them are actually free. Check their websites, though. They might be. Be on the lookout for special free days if they charge normally. Don't forget to look into botanical gardens as well. In Central Florida, we have Lou Gardens and Bach Tower Gardens. Number two, playgrounds. Your local playground can be a great field trip for physical activity. It's also a good place to find samples for science class or things to photograph or draw for art class. Can you imagine using playground equipment for physics or physical science experiments? I can. Number three, the beach. The beach was always my favorite field trip. When I was a kid, we examined tidal pools among the rocky shore of California. As a homeschool mom, I enjoyed walks along the water looking for whatever washed up on the Florida coast. We saw animals that looked like bottle caps and blue bottles. We saw fish swarm towards shore, filling a wave with their bodies. 
We learned to spot a shark or dolphin based on how many fins are out of the water. We've visited old lighthouses and new lifeguard stations. There's tons at the beach. Number four, fire stations. When my youngest son was still in preschool, another mom and I worked with him and three of his peers to make cookies one day. We wrote cards of appreciation and took them all to the local fire station. The firefighters were very blessed by our visit. They were also very proud of their shiny, clean station, which they showed to the children. Number five, police stations. We were blessed by an opportunity to visit the main police headquarters in our county one year. It was a special homeschool event where the police had pulled out all the stops for the kids. Don't wait for an event like that. Call your local station and request a day to visit. Bring some treats and cards of appreciation and let the pros teach your kids about safety. Number six free day at the zoo. Zoos have so many expenses, so it isn't surprising that they charge admission. Check with your nearest zoo and see if they offer a free day. If they do, it will be well worth working your schedule around theirs. Number seven, free day at the Holy Land Experience. We live in Central Florida, where the Holy Land Experience is located. They offer one day each year that is admission free. Go early and enjoy. If you don't live in Central Florida, look around your area for amusement parks which offer free days. Number eight, Christmas light shows. Tis almost the season. Homes, communities, neighborhoods, and even cities do amazing Christmas decorations. One evening, load up the car with the family, warm drinks, and fun snacks, and go find the most amazing Christmas light shows you can find. You can have discussions about electricity and lights and the tradition of decorating. There's so many things that you could find to turn it into an educational event. Number nine, historical sites. I've lived most of my life around historical sites. Everywhere I look, there are plaques. The last time we visited Virginia, we spent an entire day visiting one historical house after another. There was never a charge. We got great pictures, and the properties had information about the site all over the place. My town has a historical downtown. City Hall even has a hallway filled with historical photographs, each with explanations. We even have a couple of historical museums, which allow free visits, as well as mounting events which highlight the history of the area. Number 10. This is going to sound like a strange one to you, but airports, bus, or train stations. I live very near to an international airport, which used to be a U.S. Navy base. It has quite a history. They have a monument park, which features one of the aircrafts that flew there 50 years ago. It's just this giant airplane sitting out there in a park. They have a couple of showcases highlighting the history of the base and the town. Check your local area. Bus and train stations sometimes have interesting histories that they have highlighted in fun ways. So go check it out. Hi, it's Meredith Curtis again. Thank you so much for joining us for this special birthday podcast. And I want to end with seven tools to give your children so that they can be lifelong learners. As I've homeschooled for almost 25 years, I realized that there's seven basics. I call them the seven R's. And these things, if you pay attention to them, they're like the majors. You know, you major on the majors and you minor on the minors. These are like tools for their toolbox. If you give them these tools, 
You show them how to do these things well. They can do anything. They can learn anything. They can be anyone God calls them to be. The first tool is relationships. You know, lives are changed in the context of relationships. And when it gets right down to it, the most important thing in life is our relationship with Jesus. And then second is our relationship with people. Nothing else is eternal. So teach your children how to have good relationships by modeling how to have a good relationship in the way that you treat them and love them. Number two, reading. God revealed himself to us in his written word, and that makes reading an essential for walking with the Lord. But let your goal go beyond teaching children to read to raising an adult who loves to read. When it comes to books, think classics and living books, and also provide time for children to read for pleasure. Arithmetic is number three. Teach children to both understand mathematics and to do math problems correctly with consistency. By that, I mean math has two parts. There's the part where they get how to do a problem, but then there's the part where they learn to do a problem correctly every time. That takes practice. It means doing the same kind of problems over and over and then reviewing them quite often. Why is math such a big deal? Well, I don't know if you realize it, but math is the foundation for all advanced sciences. And if your child wants to pursue the advanced sciences in his life, and by that I mean like engineering, biological research, chemical research, the medical field, which would include being a doctor, being a nurse, being a vet. If they want to be an architect or an engineer, any of those things, they are going to need math. More than that, doing math teaches your brain to think logically. And it's like getting a workout every single day. Math is so good for you. The number four tool is writing. Communication through writing is an essential skill in today's world. Now, you may think, oh, all we do is email and blog. Well, let me tell you, the emails and the blogs that are read are the ones that are well-written. So from storytelling to academic research, writing skills communicate to others what you know and also what you need or want from them. A child who writes a story wants someone to appreciate the story and enjoy the story. So from emails to essays, expose your children to a wide variety of writing experiences and cheer them on every step of the way. The fifth tool is research. Now, research can involve Googling something or going to the library and checking out an armful of books. Research skills that you want to teach your child include skimming, reading, studying, note-taking, summarizing, paraphrasing, citing sources, and presenting. The sixth tool is communication. I call it rhetoric, so it's an R. And that can be anything from talking to good manners to speaking in front of a crowd. I like to start my children off with just how to greet people, how to say hi to people, how to be polite, how to ask questions and be interested in other people. As they do things like that, then they graduate to reading books out loud to children and then eventually to being able to share their testimony and actually giving speeches. As children develop poise and confidence in this skill, so many opportunities are opened for them. Now, 
I don't have outgoing children. I actually have very shy children, and I've had to work very hard with them to be comfortable in in meeting people and greeting people. And they all now, all five of them, are very comfortable to actually give a speech in front of other people. In fact, they're all great speakers. One of the the tools that we use so often was role-playing, where when my oldest daughter was little and she was too shy to even say hi to people, we would practice, okay, I'm Pastor Fred. I say, hi, Katie Beth, what are you going to say? And then she would role-play saying hi. And that's the role-playing actually ended up helping her to have the confidence to do it in person. So when they're younger, we role-play interviews. We role-play how to share the gospel. We role-play how to share a testimony. We role-play introducing ourselves to other people, speaking up in a college class. We role-play resolving conflict. And even how to just walk up and initiate a conversation. All of that has been really helpful for my children. The seventh and final tool is right living. When the Lord is in charge of our lives, we live for him. His ways are peaceful and they're also very productive. So as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I like to instill habits and patterns that set my children up for success in their walk with the Lord. Because you see, if my child has a habit of praying and reading the Bible every day, that means they're going to be fed every day for the rest of their life. That's a great pattern to instill. I have tried to teach my children how to talk to people in a way that's kind and respectful when they're offended and on and on and on. I could just go through so many things. I just want to say this right living makes a difference. And when your children are children who live right lives, good lives, holy lives, other people notice and they respect that. And it it impacts other people, whether it's at church, whether it's at their job, whether it's at home. So there's the seven tools, relationships, reading, arithmetic, writing, rhetoric or communication, research, and right living. If you give your children those tools in their toolbox, there is nothing ahead that will be too hard for them, especially if they have a great relationship with Jesus. God bless you all, and thank you so much for listening to our 100 Homeschool Hacks. We have had a great time podcasting, and we look forward to many more years ahead, and we hope that you will have a happy, wonderful, joyful homeschooling adventure. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast with Meredith Curtis and the Finish Well team. Please listen in every first and third Monday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time here at the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. 